Well, tomorrow land. What will it be like tomorrow? What does the Bible say tomorrow has in store for us? That's a great question. And I think today that question is being asked a lot. Uh, now, before we get there, though, let's look a little bit at yesterday for just a moment. Um, first 11 chapters of Genesis, just so you know, difficult to date, real difficult to date. But chapter 12, God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. That starts about 2200 B.C., 21, somewhere around in there. Uh, 1850, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and the whole Israeli nation, only 70 people, go to Egypt because there's a big drought and their kin is in, in Egypt as the prime minister. And so they go down there, um, 1850. 1450, Moses leads them out of Egypt, two million strong. We know the ten plagues and all that, Charleston Heston, all that stuff. They come on out in 1450. Then they spend about 40 years, 50 years in the, in the wilderness. They get into the promised land between 1400 and 1390. They conquer the promised land. That's You find that in the book of, of Joshua. Uh, then somewhere between 1390 and 1100, those are like dark times for Israel. I mean, the whole nation was running amok. It's a book of Judges. They just... It was just a bad scene. Uh, Judges Ruth. But then, 1100 to 933, you've got Saul and David and Solomon. That was the golden era of Israel. They were the top of the heap. You get this in First, first and Second Samuel. They were just leading the world in just about every way. Beginning of, of First Kings. But then in 933, there's a civil war. You know, the nation, the once great powerful nation, splits in two. Then in 722 B.C., the Assyrians come through, and the top nation, well, that's gone. They just take that away. And then around 600, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon comes to the south, and they take tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of exiles, of individual pilgrims, to uh, Babylon, 900 miles away. And uh, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls, they destroy the, the palace. It'd be like someone going to D.C. And, and, and leveling the White House and leveling Congress and leveling the Lincoln Memorial and leveling Smithsonian, just leveling everything that is, it makes us Americans, you know, that's significant, that's reflective of who we are. It just wiped out, wiped out Jerusalem. Well, Daniel, Ezekiel, all these guys are hanging out in Babylon now. And, and they've got a key question, 900 miles away, is God given up on us? And, and how can you live for him? And so Daniel writes his book, one through first six chapters. We just got done with our series on it, The Lion Whisperer. Uh, but uh, he writes his, his, his journal, some very fascinating stories. You know, if you've ever tried to read the book of Daniel, then it's just, you have a blast with those first six chapters, don't you? I mean, they're They're fun. They're exciting. It's hard to put it down. This is, this is the way the Bible is supposed to be. This is good stuff. Why does it excite? But then you get to chapter 7. And you go, yeah, what, what, what? You know what they're talking about. It's confusing and you're not sure. What is that? And if you can make it through chapter 12, you just find out that there's more of the same old, same old, all the way to the end. And you were fine with that first six first chapters, but those last six chapters, it's like, ah, we don't really need that in there, I don't think. You want to do away with it. Well, there's a reason why they are the way they are. And you need to know there's some differences, and we'll talk about those in just a second, between the first six and the last six. The differences that you've got to understand, or this series is going to be a long series for you. You're going to be thinking you just need to be golfing Sunday morning because um, you need to understand the difference. But please know the message, big scale, is the same. Same thing. You've got exiles 
who need to understand what's going, what's going on. God has a message for them. Differences. First six chapters, front six of, of Daniel. You've got three visions. I think the first difference, I'm going to call it a vision audience. You've got three visions in the first six chapters. All three of them are to pagan kings. God's got a message for the pagan world. And I don't mean pagan in a derogatory sense, just they don't know God. Uh, uh, but then in the last six chapters, you've got four visions. All of them to Daniel. God's got a specific message for his people. In those first six, Daniel is called in to interpret and help interpret these, these visions. In the last six, Daniel's one that has the visions and he needs help to interpret them. Uh, there's a difference in, in literature. Those first six are uh, historical narrative. You know, they're told in the uh, most part, they're all told in third person. You know, uh, Daniel said this and Nebuchadnezzar said that and the fire got hot and the this and that. And the, so they're telling a story. But, but in chapter 7 on, for the most part, it's, it's first person. Daniel's talking and he's, he's sharing. I, I'm thinking this and I saw this and I was feeling like this. And, and, he, and he's sharing. The key issue, though, is that there's historical literature here and apocalyptic literature, they call it, in, in, in chapters 7 through 12. The difficulty for us is we don't have an English equivalent to apocalyptic literature. Um, apocalyptic, the word means... Revelation. So can you think of another book that might use apocalyptic literature? Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And apocalyptic literature uses strange beasts and wild uh, visions and ghastly figures and lots of loudness and noise and pictures and sounds and brightness and uh, really talking about a cataclysmic end kind of thing. They use lots of heavy, heavy, heavy symbolism and, and, and pictures. That is apocalyptic uh, literature. Uh, apocalyptic literature, it's like you just spent someone telling you the story, but 1 through 6, 7 through 12, you watch the movie. You know, it, it's, it's apocalyptic literature, real important, wants to communicate truth, but not through the ears, but through the eyes, through the emotion. The whole goal with, with apocalyptic literature is that you feel it. And the problem is, sometimes people go after that apocalyptic literature the way they do chapters 1 through 6, they, they, with, with just this head thing going, trying to define everything. And if you do, you're just going to get yourself into a mess. You're going to interpret a lot of stuff wrong, and you're going to miss what the whole purpose of that genre of literature is supposed to do. It's to make you feel. It's to make you experience. It wants you to know, but to know not just with your mind, but with your, your, your emotion as well. Apocalyptic literature. But there, there's another difference, and this one's substantial. The first six chapters of Daniel answer the questions for us. How can you be pure in a preponderance of pagan propaganda? You know, I'm in the middle of Babylon, and everything is coming at me Babylonian and, and anti-God. How can I be pure? It's kind of like our situation, right? Or how can I be godly in a godless environment? Or, or okay, I'm in the dorms at Babylon University. How in the world can I keep myself straight? That's the goal of the first six chapters. They answered those questions. But the last six chapters, different. And that's real, real important, again, that we get this context. We know what Daniel's thinking. He tells us in Daniel 9, and we talked about this in this last several weeks, what Daniel's thinking right about now is he's, he realizes that this Babylonian captivity was only supposed to last 70 years. And time is just about up. 
And so Daniel's probably thinking, good, we're going to be getting out of here soon. And we're all going to go back to Jerusalem. And we're going to rebuild. And we're once again going to go back to the, to the Saul and David and Solomon era. And we're going to have the kingdom on this world. And that's the way it's going to be. And we're going to all live happily ever after. It's a good possibility that's what he's thinking. Because that's what back it was supposed to be. And so when God knows his people have this mindset that here online, here in this life, here in this world, they can make a kingdom for themselves. So he comes to them and he says, hey, I know you're thinking. And before you go back to Jerusalem, I just need to clear something up. You see, there's a second verse to the song that you haven't heard yet. I know you're thinking that you're only in Babylon because of your, your, your sin. And, and on one level, that's really true. But you need to know when you, when you go back, it may not be what you're, what, you're, what you're thinking. Up to this point, you know, Israel had never been uh, prejudiced against, basically, because of their faith. Uh, other nations wiped them out, but only because they got in the way. Their nations wanted the real estate. They had an imposing army. But God said, from this point on, People are going to be against you just because you follow me. And you just need to know that when you go, when you go back. Uh, as we look at 7 through 12, this whole, the rest of this, this whole series, really, really sig- significant. That we stop, and we're going to pray in just a second. But say, God, you know, this is what I want you all to do, uh, myself. Lord, would you open my eyes to what you want to show me? Would you open my ears to what you want to tell me? Would you change me? That's a simple prayer. But let's take a second where you're at. If you go ahead and pray that even right now. It's between you and God. Lord, it is our desire. That's why we're here. To look more like Christ. To understand your word. To see you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that this this morning for myself, for my brothers and sisters here. Please, Lord, would you visit us with your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's, let's jump right in. If you got your Bibles, I turn to uh, Daniel 7. If you didn't bring your Bibles, let me encourage you. For the rest of the series, I just, I just, I'll just share this straight up. It's going to mean so much more to you. You will get so much more out of it if you bring your own word versus the text on the screen. You, you just will. You'll be able to see it. And I'm a firm advocate of take a pen and mark up your, your text. But Daniel uh, chapter 7. Now, while you're turning there, listen, listen to this. this is what several scholars say about Daniel 7. One said, um, D- chapter 7 provides the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Someone else, another scholar mentioned that chapter 7 is the crux, it's the heart of the book of Daniel. Another scholar said, and I love this, it would be no exaggeration to say that this chapter is one of the most important passages of the Old Testament. Did you even know 7 existed until this morning? You know, I, I didn't know we had a chapter 7. Most, most significant in the Old Testament? I mean, this isn't like the 23rd Psalm or anything. What makes this so important? Well, that's what we want to try to find out and what specifically what God has for us. Let me ask one, one more thing, one more question you need to be asking yourself. And it's good every time you do Bible study. It's, it's this. Not, what does it mean for me? That's a good question and you need to ask that. But that's the second question. First question always ought to be, what did it mean for them? 
Because before it meant something to us, it meant something to them. And so if we land on what it meant to them, what they got out of it, we're going to have a lot easier time going with what did it mean, what should it mean for us. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, uh, again, let me just hold for a second. You notice right away, Daniel 1 through 6 is in chronology. But 7, there's a break. Uh, 7 happened, Belshazzar was going to be the last king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was king in chapter 4, but chapter 5 you got uh, uh, Darius, a Persian, a Mede in charge. So this probably happened before chapters 4 and 5. Remember in chapter 6, Daniel gets in trouble because he goes home and prays like he always does. Three times a day he gets on his knees, he prays. What do you think happened during those times? 7 through 12, tell us a little bit of what happened during those times, as God pulls back the veil of tomorrow and says, take a look, Daniel. So Daniel's got these visions. In verse 2, it says, he said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. For, now the sea, in, in ancient uh, Mediterranean, ancient Mideast perspective, is a place of chaos. It's a place of unruliness. It's untamed. God doesn't even hang out in the sea. This is one of the reasons why it was such an important thing that Jesus walked on the sea. Not just that that's a miracle, pretty huge in itself. But their understanding of the sea is monsters were in the sea. The chaos creatures, they called them. A Leviathan, behemoth. It was an untamed, unruly, wicked sort of place. And he's watching this hurricane whip up the sea, Right? he sees these beasts come out of it. Let us know right away. These beasts are not going to be good news. They're coming out of the, the uh, evil sea. And the first was like a lion. And it had wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised on one of its sides. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Nah. And after that, I looked. That now nah, is not in there. And after that, in the Hebrew, it says that. <laughs> after that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightened, frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. And it crushed and devoured its victims. And it trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. We'll get to that in a second. And it had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Over in 15... I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. What in the world does this mean? He's got the same questions we have. What does this mean? So he's talking about an angel here. Told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. Now, you've got to think back in chapter 2 of Daniel... Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. I don't know if you remember this. It's a big statue. 
and the head is gold, and the chest is silver, and the belly is bronze, and the legs are iron. And he doesn't know what this means. He calls Daniel in. God gives Daniel the answer. And Daniel says this, four, think, the head and the chest and the belly and the legs, four kingdoms. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head, but then the three are coming up right after you. Every scholar I've read says that this beasts are the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar's four parts of the statue. And so the first one is like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until it's... By the way, you know what the national sign of Babylon was? A winged lion. Archaeologists have come up with multiple winged lions. that They're built into their walls. Uh, makes sense. The, the lion, this, this top of the, the food chain. Uh, mammals, the eagle, the strongest bird. Winged lion. That's right. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. The winged lion was Babylon, right? Which ruled between 626 and 539. This... If you think back to chapter 4, remember when Nebuchadnezzar became a beast, as it were? And, and he, he, he went insane. He was acting like an animal for seven uh, times, seven years. And then, Scripture says, when he raised his eyes to heaven, God gave him the mind or heart of a man. This idea that uh, God gave him the heart, uh, heart of a man was given to it. That's no doubt the idea. Then there's another beast, and there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, uh, let me mention this for just a second. These animals, whatever they are, these are uh, mutants, right? These are a perversion. This is not the way animals are supposed to look. You've got to keep in mind, Israel did not even, they couldn't sow a field with two different kinds of seed. They couldn't wear clothes with two different kinds of clothing. And here you have animals that are hybrids of different types of animals. This would have been incredibly horrifying to Israel. This is not the way it's supposed to be. God is saying that whatever is going on here, this is not the way it it was meant to become. And each one of these beasts get a little bit more uh, vicious. They, they, they grow. They, you had the winged lion. He's just stood there. He's nice. But then the bear has got these this flesh ribs in his mouth, told go eat uh, more flesh. And then you've got this four-headed leopard. And uh, then you've got this monster thing that defies zoo- zoological categories. But the third, second one is the bear. And that would represent the silver chest from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, that would have been the Medo-Persian Empire. The three ribs in his mouth, most probably. Persia had to wipe out three biggies to get to t- be the top dog. They had to wipe out Babylon, they had to wipe out Lydia, and they had to wipe out Egypt to get where they are. So that's Daniel would have known about Medo-Persia. But this third beast, he would not, this was years and years after him. It says, and at verse 6, after that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. The next kingdom would have been the kingdom of Greece. Uh, you've got a leopard, fastest animal. He's got the wings on him, which is really going to make him quick. Um, Alexander, fascinating story. I don't know if you studied it on Alexander the Great. Uh, army of 35,000. He's able to take out the Persian horde's army that is a million plus. And the way he did it, military strategy, was just a lightning war. Uh, 
Matter of fact, Hitler was going to copy Alexander's strategy, call it his blitzkrieg. And so Alexander, is, is, his kingdom is, is larger yet than the medieval Persian one, which is larger than, than Babylon. He takes so much space. But then he dies. And when he dies, they take his kingdom, still a Greek kingdom, and they divide it into four quadrants run by his generals, four heads of the leopard. And then in verse 7, it says, After that, my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. And Twenty-one. It says, As I watched this horn waging war against the saints and defeating them, uh, we'll move on down. Hang on, let me, let me just start off even verse 19. I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others, and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue the three kings. He will speak against the Most High. He will oppress the saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. This beast, this fourth one, terrifies Daniel. Like the other ones were probably not necessarily a walk in the park either. But this one's really scary to him. He says that, it, I mean, first of all, it defies zoological categories. It's got the, the iron uh, teeth and the bronze claws and the ten horns. It's like a monster type of thing. And he doesn't know what, what to make of it. And it's interesting that it says that this one was unlike the others. And I, I wonder, how was it unlike? I mean, the others weren't the same thing. They weren't all from the same litter. They were all different. How is this one unlike the others? I believe this one is unlike the others in this regard. This was going to stand for Rome, which ruled longest, most amount of, of land, which was the most vicious in its attacks on Christians and uh, on the saints. Um, but still, the others did the same sort of, of thing. This one is different in the fact that, that though it represented and f- was fulfilled in Rome, by Rome, its future fulfillment is a greater nation yet. And, and let me read this for you. Uh, Revelation 13. And I think we've got this one on the screen. I saw a beast. Listen to his words. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Please know, too, John is underneath the fourth beast when he writes this. He's on the island of Patmos, Rome. The fourth beast is ruling. But look what it says. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each head had a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So all of those come to bear on 
Rome, and I would hold a future kingdom as well. Now, before you, you, you challenge that, please know that that's not a strange thing in the Old Testament, to have an immediate fulfillment with a future fulfillment. For example, Isaiah 7 lets us know, the virgin will be with child, and you will call his name Emmanuel, right? Um, we know that, that Matthew tells us that, that, that text, Isaiah 7, talks about Jesus. But Isaiah 7, it's talking about Isaiah's son, a guy by the name of Meher Shalah Hashbaz. How's that for a name, huh? It was fulfilled in Isaiah's son, Meher Shalah Hashbaz. But yet, Scripture lets us know, but the deeper fulfillment down the road, it was in Jesus. Likewise, this fourth kingdom has a future fulfillment as, as well. Now, Back to Daniel 7. He says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. That sounds like gross stuff, doesn't it? Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, back in verse 19, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. And the beast crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot everything that was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked most imposing and had eyes and a mouth and spoke boastfully. And I watched as this horn was waging war against the saints. This little horn. What is this little little horn? Daniel chapter 11 is going to talk about this person a little bit more. In chapter 11, verse 36 and 37, he says this. He takes away the metaphor. He says, this king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every good, uh, every God, and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for that has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of, of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, which is Jesus, nor will he regard any God, but will exalt himself above them all. Second Thessalonians, Paul talks about this little horn, this king who exalts himself. In Second Thessalonians 11, he says this. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will come, not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, speaking blasphemies. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance uh, with how Satan works. This lawless one, this king who exalts himself, this little horn is spoken of in, in Revelation 13 as well. It says, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. You see that they have something in common here? Uh, and to exercise its authority for 42 months. That's time, times, and half a time, but we're not going to get into that one. It opened its mouth to, bla- uh, to blaspheme God 
and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. That's Notice all inhabitants of the earth. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. Also, if you looked in 7, this fourth beast, this nation, will uh, conquer the world. And, and there's this, this, uh, this horn. Just what do you know of it from the text? Well, you know a couple things. He's got eyes. It doesn't mean the... Uh, Scripture first tells us that they're kings. Uh, this king has eyes. It doesn't mean the other ones don't. It just means that they're working off of his vision. It, when it says that he's got a, a, a mouth, he's their mouthpiece. He's influencing them. He's directing them. And how is he doing it? With blasphemies. The fact that he uprooted three, that, would, that speaks of his destroying three. Somehow in this last beast that incorporates ten kings... He becomes the spokesman. Uh, he's got names. You know, Jesus has got a lot of names, right? He's Jesus, of course, and he's the Son of God and the Son of Man and, and Emmanuel and the Prince of Peace. This, this little horn. I mean, Satan's got his Savior, too. He's a little horn. He's the king who exalts himself. First uh, John 2 tells us he's the Antichrist. Uh, Revelation 13 calls him the beast. Second Thessalonians 2 says he's the man of lawlessness. He's got the same M.O., all the way around. He's always blaspheming God. He's always fighting after God's, God's people. And Satan is, is, is seeking to raise up an individual who's going to lead the world, who will be totally against the people. So what God is saying to these Israelites, his people who are going back, saying, you all just need to keep in mind that it's not going to be like you're thinking. That in this world, nation after nation after nation after nation, culminating with one final nation that's going to incorporate the whole world, will be against you because you follow me. Not necessarily because of your sin, not necessarily because of your rebellion, but because you follow me. And if you go back to your home and you, you, are, you are upset because the governments aren't supporting you, if you go back to your home and you're trying to build your own kingdom and you want the utopia and you think that it's, this should be the way it should be and that everybody should support you, uh, it's not, not going not gonna to happen. Uh, in chapter 7, we talk about this uh, horn, this, this kingdom. Verse, um, let's see if I can find it. Verse 26 is the court will sit with his, pow- with his power, since the Antichrist, his power taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High, his kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now, did you hear that? That's real important. Because some folk will say, Oh, this is already, when Jesus died, see, all the saints have the kingdom. And so we've got the kingdom now. In one level, that's true. But do we have it according to what Daniel says here? Talk to our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq as ISIS is kicking down their doors. And let them know, oh, listen, don't worry about it, because all the rulers of the world are worshiping and obeying God. 
That's not happening. Tell them, don't worry about it, because see, you have got sovereignty and power and greatness. You've got power and greatness over them. That's not happening. And so while when Christ died, his kingdom began, it will not be consummated, fulfilled, until he returns. And so real important, what God is telling his, his people, is you need to keep in mind that down here, you're not to be trying to build your kingdom. You're not to be seeking utopia down here. It's just not going to happen. And this would be a very sad vision, wouldn't it, if it didn't keep going. For verse 9, it says, Then I looked, and thrones were set in place. Now he's taking them from, from looking on the earth and looking on all these beasts and looking on these mutant beasts that are trying to devour them. Takes their gaze heavenwards. And he says, And, and I, as I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throat, who's the Ancient of Days? You know, we think we know. But the word means uh, just old one. It means eternal. Now, the beast, right? They all had a beginning. The little horn, he wasn't for a while, and then he sprung up. He had a beginning. But this is the eternal one. It's the one who always was. Notice, too, the beasts are, are mutants. They're deformed. But this is one of the few pictures in the Old Testament of God personified. He's personified here, human, sitting on a, a throne. It says his, his clothing was, was white as snow. That's this purity. The, the, the little horn, blasphemies. Uh, white as snow, pure. The hair of his head was white like wool. This is his is age again, his uh, wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. You know, every time you see fire in the Bible, two things. It's either going to be purification, or it's going to be judgment. Well, which of the two here? We'll keep going. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. Got that? And the books were open. Daniel has taken us to a courtroom scene. And the Ancient of Days is, is on the, the throne. And judgment is, 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 is uh, building up. He opens the books, which is symbolic of his memory of every word said, every thought thought, every action, every blasphemous anything. And he's bringing up judgment. It's coming. It's coming. And then, look in verse 13. I, I, 13 and 14, most... Intriguing verses of this whole text for me. Fascinating, fascinating verses. Matter of fact, 13 is the most quoted verse of, of the book of Daniel in the New Testament. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? Now, again, we can read our New Testament Trinitarian into it, but you've got to keep in mind, Old Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity, was just not that well developed yet. And so for a, uh, this Son of Man, well, he's coming on the clouds, right? Which was a sign of deity. That was an act only God did in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 68, but there's many. We could go to a lot of different places. Sing to God. Sing in the praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. 
Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. And over and again, God's coming in the clouds. You got this one. It's coming on the clouds as well. By the way, when they come on, God comes on the clouds in Scripture, it's usually a sign of judgment that's transpiring. So this Son of Man is coming on the clouds. Also, you notice that everyone will worship him. And you know, as well as I do, for a Jew, you worship only God. It's the only one you worship. It's the only one you worship. But yet this Son of Man will be worshipped. And Daniel, I would think that this verse, more than any of them, would blow Daniel away. What is this? Daniel could not have invented this. This would have been so anathema to a, a, a Jewish mind. Well, guess what Jesus' favorite title for himself was in Scripture. Son of Man. So he called himself that more than, than anything else. He says, and I'm just going to give a little bit here, but Mark... Okay, just, just the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 2, verse 10, he calls himself the Son of Man in 28. Chapter 8, verse 31, he calls himself the Son of Man and in verse 39. Mark 9, 9, 12 and 31, he calls himself the Son of Man. Mark 10, 33 and 45, he calls himself the Son of Man. Mark 13, 26, he calls himself the Son of Man. Mark 14, verses 21, 41 and 62, he calls himself the Son of Man. That's just Mark. We haven't gone through Matthew or Luke or John. He calls himself this all the time. And we've already realized that Jesus understands the Old Testament relatively well. But is he referring to himself from this text? I think so. Matthew 16. He's talking about the end times. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Talking about the end times, which is what Daniel 7 is letting us know. Matthew 24. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial. And the high priest straight up asks him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, Let me keep going. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds in heaven. Now what you need to know is early Judaism saw this passage in Daniel 7, messianic. And so when the, when the guy asked him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus quotes this, this portion of scripture that they know is messianic. Referring to himself. That's why the high priest does this. He tears his clothes. And he says, he's spoken blasphemy. Well, why? Because he knows Daniel 7. He knows this son of man is riding on the clouds. And he's, he's, he's deity. And he's, he, he's, he's worshipped. And Jesus is claiming that. Jesus knows. Jesus thought he was the son of man from Daniel 7. Very clear. Now, let me just... And I don't have this one on... But just let me just read this, because this is huge. If you've got your Bibles, it's Revelation uh, 5. Because, you know, there's another portion in Scripture, in Revelation, where the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days on the throne. Remember this? It says, Daniel, Revelation 5, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, 
and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And you know what's in that scroll that he's going to open? Fire. It's judgment. It's another picture of, of, of Daniel chapter 7. And what he's letting us in on, letting his people on, and this is a huge lesson, it's what they, they need to know, that although you look around down here, and you look at the headlines, and you see uh, drug cartel kingpins escaping prison and you see ISIS flaunting it with videos of their uh, murdering children who claim to be Christ followers and no one steps up to do anything and you look at the justice that comes out in just about every headline of our world and you say evil's won God says you're going to get there you're going to get there you just need to know the ancient of days is on his throne his judgment is, is, is burning and the sun is coming, and there will be a day when there will be, when there will be justice. Daniel 7, verse 11, it says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, and I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. Please know, it's not going to be close. It's not going to be, oh my goodness, who's going to win this one? Like we, we talk the Battle of Armageddon. That's a different series. That's Revelation. We're not talking about that. But know this. It's not going to be like like a, a, a action flick. Who's going to win? We're just not sure. It's, it's, it's not even an issue. Uh, Satan's done. In verse 21-22, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Verse 26, but the court will sit and his, it's the little horns, power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Key lesson God wants his people to know as they live in this kind of world that we live in, please remember that the last chapter is not written in the headlines. Nobody gets away with anything. They don't. Justice, pure justice, will happen. Uh, uh, Evil will be destroyed in time. And somehow, this whole deal, God is, is sovereign. He hands the saints over to them for times, times, and half a time. God is in control. My future, your future is not determined by whatever's going on, by the randomness of our, of our headlines of this world. I can't explain it all, but God is in control. And evil will be snuffed out. And he says, as you go through this world, if you're not thinking that, if you don't understand that, if you're just looking at the beast and not looking at the throne room of God, the ancient of days on his throne, you're going to miss it. And the second thing, and, and that's that... Uh, he lets them know that they will receive a kingdom. It says in verse 18, he says, But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Uh, the idea is, is like uh, in math, the forever with a line over the top. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's an infinity. You're just going to keep on, it, it keeps on going. Verse, um, we'll take it to 27. Uh, 
Then the sovereignty, power, and... Notice these words. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms of the... of Kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints. The people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey Him. What he's saying is one day you will be given a kingdom. And in a sense, it's given to you. Jesus is going to be ruling. You wouldn't want it any other way. But it's given to you. You In our hearts, we want these things. We want greatness. And we want sovereignty. I want to be in charge of my life. And and, and we, we want power. I'm not so sure those are bad things for us to want even. And we will be given them. But what he's telling us is, if I'm going to give these to you in my kingdom, pure. You've never experienced anything like this. Sometimes in this world, we scrap and we beat and we do everything we can to try to get to the top and to try to make our own kingdom, don't we? And, and try to uh, uh, gain the power and gain the security and gain the prestige. And God's saying, you'll get it one day. But if you're fighting for it down here, you, you just miss it. Because kingdom after kingdom after... You're living on a cosmic battleground. You're living in a a different sphere is going on around you. You don't even recognize. And until the Ancient of Days stands up, until the, the, the sun activates the judgment... You'll chase your kingdom in vain because it's just never going to be there. It's never going to happen. Stephen Covey years ago wrote his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Remember this? I think it was the fourth habit uh, was begin with the end in mind. And he draws this picture. It's kind of a neat thing. He says, you go to your own funeral. And you're just like in the back corner watching and you got someone from your work and someone from your family and uh, a friend stand up and they're going to talk about you. What... What do you want them to say? Don't go down the road what they're going to say. What do you want them to say? Well, live your life based on that. Living your life based with the end in mind is a good thing, according to Covey. It's not, not, a, not bad counsel. God would take it a step further and say, as you live your life and you're looking at it, all the things going on, live it in view of the end, the final end. When, when the Ancient of Days defeats evil and all, all, all injustice is judged and gives you a kingdom. And you might say, if the Ancient of Days is going to bring all justice in, bottom line is, I really don't deserve a kingdom. I just, I just don't. And he, he knows that. That's why this Son of Man came to this world, right? So that when he, he died on the cross, it wasn't for himself. He was perfect. But it was, it was for your sin and mine. Justice had to be done for our, our sin. And God, a God of justice, had his son die for my sin and yours that we might get his kingdom. We might be part of it. So as we go into this study, it's going to be a wild, wild study. This was his most intense vision. But let me ask you, do you know the son of man? who died for your sin, that your justice, I mean, took your justice for your sin, that you might get a kingdom one day. Uh, Where you sit, it's not an issue of doing anything per se, but committing your life, repenting, turning your life over to him, saying, Lord, I I, I didn't understand, I didn't recognize, 
I give you my, my life. I'm not living for my kingdom. I'm not living for down here, but for yours. His death and his resurrection will cover your sin. And one day, one day, he'll have a kingdom for you. Would you 